Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, we thank you because you love us. And even before we loved you, you loved us. And you gave your life as a ransom for each one of us here today. And Lord, as we seek a word from you, from your holy textbook, we invite your presence, not just in our midst, but in our hearts to guide us, to direct us to a fuller understanding of you and the plans that you have for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Today um, is perhaps going to be a bit different from a traditional sermon or Sabbath morning slash afternoon service, in that is going to be a little bit more technical. What's it going to be? More technical. Not extremely technical, but a bit more technical. And you'll have to stay with me as we start by looking at some historical issues that will help us to understand today's message. Today's message is about a blameless walk and is found in Job chapter 1, verse 1. I read it a while ago. I want to read it again. Job chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads... There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. There's loads of information in this one verse. But to start with, we need to ask, we need to ask some historical questions. What do I mean historical questions? Questions that will help us understand the historical details of this passage. So the first historical question that we need to ask is about the character, the person in this passage. Who is he? Job. So it says there was a man and his name was Job. Job in the, in the Hebrew. Now, the really question about Job in today's um, scholarship is did Job really exist? That's the real question. Did Job really exist? And now early Jewish sources say that, yes, Job was an historical person. But then later rabbis, and most certainly modern scholars, they question the historicity of the character of Job. But if we look elsewhere in the Bible, we will find a, a, um, an answer to this question. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20, Ezekiel mentions Job in connection or in association with Noah and Daniel. So if were Noah and Daniel real people? 
Yes. And is Job connected in these passages with Daniel and Noah? So by this association of these three characters, we can conclude that yes, the, the rest of the Bible seems to indicate that Job was a real person. Then in the book of James in the New Testament, we also see an indication that James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, believed Job to be a real person, to have really existed in the past. So did Job really exist? According to the rest of, of the scripture, certainly yes. Second question, when did Job live? If he really existed, when would be the time frame of his existence? Remember, we are first dealing with historical questions, so we can then deal with what the sermon is all about. We haven't started the sermon yet. So when did Job live? Now, loads of indications in the book of Job appear to suggest that Job lived during the patriarchal period. That is the time of the patriarchs. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and so on and so forth. First indication is that Job performed sacrifices. What does it mean? It means that Job must have lived before the priesthood was established in Exodus and Leviticus. Because once the priesthood was established, only priests could sacrifice. Job is not a priest, therefore Job lived before the priesthood of Leviticus and Exodus. Is that clear? The second point is that there is a connection with us, the land, the, the place where Job lived, and one of the descendants of Abraham. So probably after the time of Abraham. The, the third one is that Job's material wealth was counted in terms of animals, number of animals, and number of possessions. The third point is that Job lived more than 140, 140 years. That means that he lived for a reasonable long time. And that, of course, is only, uh, only found evidence in the patriarchal period because after the Exodus, people lived less than hundreds and two hundreds. So the, the, the number of years that Job lived is an indication. This is, of course, minimum because before he had other children and so forth. So he lived for a reasonable long lifespan and that indicates a patriarchal period as well. Another one is connection with Job and Egypt that Job's there is a person in the genealogy of Jacob that is called by Job. Doesn't mean he's the same one, but he's the only instance outside the book of Job and outside Ezekiel that the name Job is found. So it's quite significant, I think. And then Eliaphaz is a possible descendant of Esau, Esau who is uh, Jacob's brother, son of Isaac. So we have quite a few evidence, uh, quite a few pointers, let me say, indicating that Job lived during the patriarchal period. And that's, of course, in First Chronicles. The next question we need to ask is, who wrote the book of Job? Was Job himself who wrote the book? The, bo the book is mainly written 
as in the third person, meaning someone else writing, not Job himself. There is early Jewish tradition pointing to the authorship of Moses. Then later rabbis, again, they changed their minds and starts gave other possibilities. But early Jewish sources indicate that it was Moses. And even uh, Ellen White, uh, in the passage that I have there, says that it was in the desert solitudes uh, that Moses wrote the book of Genesis and also the book of Job. So, for me, I take it. Yes, probably Job. The parallels between Genesis and the book of Job, everything that I told you so far, who wrote Genesis? Moses and the parallels. Uh, Early Jewish sources, E.G. White. So, I accept it. Moses was um, the author of Job. What does this have to do with a blameless walk? What does this, this, this historical details have to do with the topic a blameless walk and this is now where the real sermon begins job 1 1 says that job was blameless does it say it job was blameless and now especially the more traditional conservative folk, which I'm part of, we sometimes tend to see blameless in the Bible as something which it isn't. So let's look at the, the word blameless. This is the, the rest of the study concerns around this word, blameless. And the word in the, in the Hebrew is the word tamim. What's the word? Tamim, okay? It's the word tamim. We're going to focus on this word a lot. So remember the word. Ta- not tamim, sorry. Tam. You're going to see why tamim. It's tam, okay? Tam. It appears 14 times in the entire Old Testament. Only 14 times. The translation is blameless. Possible translation is blameless complete, guiltless, peaceful, perfect, and so on and so forth. And uh, again, what is the theological meaning? Does it mean sinlessness? Does it mean that Job was without sin? Now, a little bit of systematic theology, which, we, which is, in a nutshell, bring different passages together, compare and contrast, and get a, the- a theology out of it. A little bit of systematic theology says, for instance, Romans 6, 23, all have sinned except Job. Is that right? No. All have sinned, including Job. Psalm 14, verse 3, they have all turned aside except Job. There is no one who does good except Job. No, not one. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, for there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. Is Job's blamelessness equals sinlessness? Without sin, does it or does it not? Of 
course not. End of the sermon. <coughs> Problem fixed. But if he doesn't mean, let's, before I ask that question, can it mean sinlessness? And how many times does the word time appear? 14. Do you want to see one of the applications of this word? It's in Genesis 25, 27. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Do you see the word mild? Is the word tam. Was Jacob sinless? Certainly not. If there's anyone to be sinless in the Bible, certainly that's not joke. J uh, Jacob. Certainly not. So this word tam does not mean sinlessness. So if the word doesn't mean sinlessness, what does it mean? But wait a second. Job 1, 1, the same verse, says that he shunned evil. Isn't that an indication of not sinning, not committing evil, turning away from? Isn't that an indication of sinlessness, some might argue? When you look at the word evil, ra, ra there's another word for evil, ra but this one is ra. Evil in the Bible, appears 667 times. Almost the 666. 667, he appears in the Bible. And the possible translation is bad, evil, unethical, immoral, adversity, or trouble. Of the 67, so what is the theological meaning of shunning from evil, not committing, not doing evil, or turning aside from evil? What is the theological meaning? Do you want to see, again, the same systematic theology approach would sort the problem out? Of course, it's not applying to sinlessness. Now, Ra is used, for instance, in Isaiah 47, verse 45, verse 7. And this one, if you take the word Ra to mean evil in terms of ethical evil, immoral, Look what this verse says. Isaiah 47, 45, verse 7. I, that is God, form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. Ra! Is that text saying that God creates evil in an ethical, immoral sense? Is Ra the meaning the, the, the uh, equivalent of sin, evil and sin? Of course not. Otherwise, you run into a lot of troubles that God creates sin. Evil, although can be applied to ethical circumstances, does not always apply to ethical circumstances. Did you get that? It may apply sometimes, but not always. And in fact, in the book of Job, the word Ra appears 15 times. One of the instances where it is used. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful, Ra, painful boils. And in other instances, Ra 
or most of the 15 uses in the book of Job is referring to the trouble that fell upon Job. So that ra in the book of Job is primarily used to define Job's trials and troubles. Everything that happened to him in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So if blameless does not mean sinlessness, and if shunning evil does not mean not sinning, what does it mean? We have said what it isn't, but we haven't said what it is. Are you with me? We haven't yet discovered the meaning of time. At this moment, there is two options for us to discover the meaning of time, of blameless. How many options? Two options. We can go intra-textuality which is we go within the book of Job to scrutinize the meaning of time. Where do we go? In the book of Job. Intra-textuality. Or we can go outside, without the book of Job. Not, not without in the, in the sense of, in the absence of, but without in the sense of outside of. So, and that is intertextuality. So if we go intra-textuality first, we will see that blameless time appears 14 times in the book of Job and seven, uh, 14 times in the entire Bible, seven times in the book of Job, and none of them provides theological meaning. None. There is not one instance where the word time is used and by context you can discover the theological meaning of the word. What do I mean theological meaning? I mean the practical uh, uh, usage of the, of the word time. What does it mean in practical, real terms? There is, of the seven instances, I'll repeat, in the book of Job, there is not one that provides theological meaning to the word time. So if intra-textuality in the book of Job doesn't work, where do we need to go? Intertextuality, outside of the book of Job. Are you with me? If inside doesn't work, we need to go outside. And the question is, where do we go outside? Where? Do you remember the points? Now we talked right at the beginning. When did Job live? What was the period? Patriarchal period? Where should we look for evidence for theological meaning? Come on, where? In the patriarchal period. If that is the period when Job seems to have lived, that is the period where we should go to find theological meaning. Makes sense, right? That's actually good exegesis. We're looking at the context of the text so that we don't make a pretext of the text. So we go to the context of the possible context where Job lived. This now becomes beautiful, honestly. This is just gorgeous. In fact, this is like the, one of the best news for me in the entire Bible. It's just amazing. When you go to the word tam, 
How many times? 14 times. Of the 14 times, seven are in, Gen in, in Job, and the seven others are elsewhere in the Old Testament. If you look at the time, at the occurrences of the word time, time, the first time it appears is in Genesis 25, 27. It's about Jacob being a mild man. We just read it a while ago. So that's the first appearance. The second appearance is in Exodus 26, 24. We are going chronologically throughout the Bible. And the third appearance is in Job 1, 1. Does Genesis 25, 27 give us theological meaning? We just read it a while ago. It doesn't. It just says that Jacob was a mild man, a tam guy. Exodus 26, 27 doesn't give theological meaning either. And Job, of course, that's the one we are trying to study. It doesn't give us either. So where do we go from here? Because the, the appearance of the, the usage of the word tam in the patriarchal period seems almost non-existing. Genesis 25, 27 applied to Jacob doesn't, doesn't help us at all. This is where we need to do a bit more uh, study, to go a bit deeper. And the way we'll go a bit deeper is by looking at the sister word. What is it? What we're going to look for now? A sister word. And this is the word of the word tam, is the word tamim. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound similar, sorry? Tam, tamim. Guess what? It is exactly the same translation. Blameless, complete, guiltless, perfect, and blemished. It's exactly the same translation. Do you see it? Tam and Tamim. The good news is that Tamim is used 91 times in the Old Testament. How many? 91. Tam only 14 times. Tamim 91. Even better news, even better news is that of the 91 occurrences, two are in Genesis. And those two in Genesis are in Genesis 6, 9 and in Genesis 17, 1. Did you catch that? What is significant about the word Tamim appearing twice in Genesis, Genesis 6 and Genesis 17? What is the significance, you may ask? The significance is that we have two sister words, Tam and Tamim, Right? In the same time period, that is, patriarchal period, by whom? By the same author. Did you catch the significance of that? Two sister words, Tam and Tamim, in the same period, by the same author. It's very significant. 
And it is, it is even of greater significance when you look at those texts. Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, 17. Let's read them. What does it say? This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. Perfect. Tamim. In his generations, Noah walked with God. So that's the first occurrence in Genesis of the sister word Tamim. Not Tam. Tam is not used. Tamim is the sister word. Same meaning. Same translation. The second, in Genesis 17, verse 1, God speaks to Abraham and he says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be tamim. Two occurrences. Genesis 6, Noah was blameless. And Genesis 17, Abraham is called is invited to be blameless. Is there any similarity between these two texts? There is a great point of similarity. And the great point of similarity is to walk. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was blameless, and he walked with God. Abraham is called to be blameless and is called to walk with God. So that Hebrew is now using, the, the technical term is parallelism, and it is to use two terms and they give theological meaning to each other. You see the word blameless and the word to walk, twice used, one gives meaning to the other. What does it mean? It means that to be blameless is to walk, and to walk is to be blameless. They are being used as theological parallels. Looking at these words, to walk, more than 1,500 times it's used in the Bible. The verbal form here in the occurrence of Genesis and 6 and 17, is in the verbal form of the itpael. And in simple terms, itpael means a reflective, intensive, continuous action. Did you get that? Here, when you, when you read the word to walk, the verbal form gives it extra meaning. So that to walk means to walk reflexively, intensively, and continuously. So when the Bible is saying that Noah walked with God, he is saying that Noah kept on walking with God. When Abraham is asked to walk with God, it's not just a one-off, it is a continuous walking with God. Do you remember... In Genesis 3, 8, God walking in the garden is the same. Itpael. 
It means that God was continuously walking in the garden, looking for Adam and Eve. It's not that just God just came there, he gave the first step, and then that's how it was. No, it was that God went to and fro. You remember in Job chapter 1 when God asks Satan, where do you come from? Satan says, from walking in the, on the earth to and fro upon it. That's the meaning. That's the same eat payel. It means that Satan was continuously, intensively, and reflexively walking upon the earth, which was his territory. There was another biblical character that walked with God. You remember him? Enoch walked the same continuously walked with God 300 years and Enoch walked with God and it was not for God took him what is the consequence of walking with God God will take us can we inverse that why is the reason why Jesus hasn't taken us yet? I mean, at the second coming, not out of the bloom. Maybe because we are not walking with him. Because when Enoch and God were walking together, they were so close to each other, that God said, you know, I can't be physically separate from my friend Enoch anymore. I need to take him. He belongs to me. I need to be in his presence. He needs to be in mine. Now, is the walking literal? Does it mean that Enoch and Noah and Abraham were literally, physically there walking with God? Does it mean spiritually? You know, we, we sometimes talking about taking the Bible literally. We, you know, I have problems with that word. We should take the Bible literarily, not literally. Because when you take it literally, you run into a lot of problems. For instance, Jesus said, I am the door. Does that mean that Jesus is the physical door? Like a proper wooden door? Of course not. Garden of Eden, their eyes were open. Does that mean that before seeing their eyes were literally closed, that they, were, they couldn't see where they're going? Of course not. We need to take the Bible literally, not literally. Yes, we need to look at historical details to find the, the, the literality of those events. But primarily the Bible is a book. Is a piece of literature. So, of course, it doesn't mean that Enoch and Noah and uh, Abraham were literally walking with God. It means in a spiritual sense. And what does that really mean? It means that they had a relationship with God. It means that they related to God continuously walking with God means that 
the believer, the one that is walking with God, knows who God is in a practical, experiential level. On an everyday basis, you know who God is. So what are the theological applications of all of these that I'm saying? What is the praxis, the, the practica in Latin, the application for you and me today of this study? You may be kind of hanging me there, what's this really all about? The first thing that we need to remind ourselves is that blameless does not mean sinlessness. What is it? Blamelessness does not mean sinlessness. We need to, to change our focus from, oh, I can't sin, I can't do this, I can't. That's not, that's not going to help us. We need to shift from being worried with not sinning and we need to worry with walking with God. Blameless does not mean sinlessness. Blameless means spiritual walk with God, relationship. So that we need to shift from being concerned and worried about not sinning and worry about relationship with God, building a relationship with God. Wait a second, I'm coming to the issue of sin, don't worry. But that's not the point. When we focus, oh, I can't sin, I can't do this, I can't do that, we miss the big picture. The big picture is not the details, the big picture is a relationship with God, is a spiritual walk with God. And only then, when we are in a real relationship with God, can we address the issue of sin. Because if we try to address the issue of sin without the relationship with God, it's impossible. We can't do it. Because we're trying on our own. We're not looking to God. We're looking at ourselves and say, I can't do this, I can't do that. I can't eat this, I can't eat that. But when we are walking with God, when we relate to God, when God is spiritually there with us, when we go with Him and the Shekinah glory, in the same way that He went with the tabernacle through the desert, that the Shekinah glory was there, and the Shekinah glory through His Spirit is in us, who are the temple of His Spirit, then things are going really to work out for us. Because we're not there on our own. So the third point, the third practical point of application is the law of contemplation. Have you heard about it? It basically means that by beholding, you become changed. And in, on the spiritual level, it means that when you behold God and when your focus is in relating to Him and dedicating yourself to Him in a love relationship, by beholding Him, you're going to become changed. And the issue of sin is going to be addressed. Not by you personally, but by 
by the one whom you are relating to. So the big question is, are you blameless? Are you blameless? According to the study of today, if you are walking with God, if you are relating with God, if you, go, if you know God on a practical, experiential, relational level, yes, you are blameless. Yes, you are blameless. Because blameless is nothing to do with sinlessness. Blameless got to do with relationship. Are you in a relationship with God? Remember, continuous, intensive, and reflexive relationship. Are you in that relationship? If you are, I have good news. You are blameless in your relationship with God. If you are not, I invite you, I encourage you, I challenge you to begin that relationship. Not because God needs your relationship with him, but because you need a relationship with him. I began that relationship about five years ago. And we'll leave it there. But since I began that relationship, my life has changed dramatically. From smoking, drinking, partying, drugs to today. Did I have to, oh, I can't smoke, I can't drink, I can't do this? No, of course not. It was the simple step of walking with God, relating to God. Those issues are automatically, what did I say? Automatically dealt with. You don't need to worry about them. God is going to sort them out for you. Our focus needs to be on walking with God, on relating to God. Early in the morning, late at night, throughout the day, praying without season. We're really now talking, how can we relate to God? How can we experience God in a practical, everyday level? That's a story for a different sermon. But today, I want to challenge. Number one, those who are already in that relationship, keep walking with God. Change, change your, your, your focus point from not sinning to relationship with God. That's going to free you from a lot. A lot of pressure and trouble. It's going to free you off to really experience God. And those who haven't yet started that relationship, I beg you, I implore you, do so as soon as possible. Because our Lord is coming soon. You look at the news and things are just getting worse and worse. Our Lord is coming soon. And he's going to come to get those, to take those who know him on a practical level, on an experiential level. So that's my challenge for you today. And may God bless you as you dedicate yourself to him and as you relate to him on a day-to-day basis. Amen. Dear Lord, indeed we want to live with you.
We want to live with you for eternity in the heavenly mansions that you are preparing for us. But we also want to live with you right here, right now. Starting from today, Lord, we want to walk with you continuously to the promised land. And Lord, as we do so, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes heavenly word, not earthly word. Help us to love you, not the world and the things of the world. Help us, Lord, to dedicate ourselves to you in service and in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.